0: Welcome to Measures of Truth, a His Dark Materials podcast. I'm Caitlin.
1: I'm Alan. I'm Francis.
2: And I'm Anya. And today we're discussing chapters 14 and 15 of The Subtle Knife, the second book in the His Dark Materials trilogy.
0: In Chapter 14, Alamo Gulch, Lee and Grumman fly leisurely over Chigatze... That is the weirdest spelling of that. Chigatze uh, in Lee's balloon. A while later, they realize they are being pursued by Magisterium Zeppelins. Grumman uses his shaman... Shaman... Murder, powers to summon a thunderstorm and takes out one of the Zeppelins with lightning, but three remain. Lee executes an emergency crash landing into a forest where they can hide for the night... While trying to sleep, Lee gets visions of two of the Zeppelins crashing due to Grumman's magical influence. The surviving Magisterium force sets fire to the forest to chase Lee and Grumman out. Just as they reach a ravine, they are spotted by the remaining Zeppelin. Lee sends Grumman on his way and stays behind to defend the ravine entrance so Grumman can escape to protect Lyra. Lee and Hester work together to pick off as many of the Magisterium soldiers as they can, but they are outnumbered and outgunned. Lee is shot several times before he remembers the flower Serafina Pecola gave him and uses it to call for help. Lee shoots the zeppelin, which catches on fire and kills all the remaining soldiers before dying himself.
2: In Chapter 15, Blood Moss, Lyra and Will are still hiking with the witches and Will's hand is still bleeding. They realize that they are being pursued and send a witch Lena to go investigate while Serafina leaves to go help Lee. Lena turns herself invisible and finds Mrs. Coulter attempting to seduce information out of Lord Boreal. Lena watches Mrs. Coulter poison Lord Boreal's drink, who then addresses Lena directly and reveals that she has learned to see past witch invisibility, as Boreal chokes to death in the background. Mrs. Coulter controls a specter and uses it to attack the witch's demon and torture her for information about Lyra and Will. Lena reveals that Lyra will be the mother of all, also known as Eve. Mrs. Coulter vows to destroy Lyra to prevent another fall and lets the specter consume Lena's demon. Then Mrs. Coulter commands the horde of specters to go pursue Lyra and Will.
1: Meanwhile, Will is taking a walk and is attacked by a strange man who is obviously Grumman. They fight until Grumman gets him in a hold and notices Will's lack of fingers. He remarks that Will is the knife bearer and then heals his hand. They talk about the knife and Grumman claims to be the only person who knows what to do with it. It is the one weapon that can defeat the authority, God. Grumman tells Will that he must go to Lord Asriel, and tell him that Grumman had sent him. At the exact moment that they seem to figure out that they might just be related, Grumman falls dead from a witch's arrow. The witch gives a terrible excuse for why she was obliged to kill Grumman, he scorned her love, and then kills herself. Will pledges to take the knife to Asriel, and then conveniently runs into some angels who are there to help him do just that. He returns to the camp to get Lyra first and finds all the witches specter dead and Lyra missing, with the alethiometer left behind. Also, at one point, he puts his cloak on over his pack, which felt weird to me.
0: (laughs) Very plot relevant. It's a mantle. It was about the the metaphor.
3: (laughs) It's a pretty shoddy metaphor. (laughs) (laughs) It might be a dad joke, to be honest. (laughs) What,
1: well, the the joke being, haha your dad's dead?
3: <laughs> well, it's like, for the whole book, he's like, I'm going to put on my father's mantle. And like...
0: Oh! <laughs> he... Yes, that's what I mean. Yeah. It's about the metaphor. He
1: does do that. But like, literally. such a, such a blindingly obvious metaphor, though. Yeah, yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah, I didn't say it was good. <laughs> good. I'll be honest, I... I didn't even notice it happening, so... it right. ...wasn't obvious enough to me.
1: <laughs> he might as well have just suddenly developed, like, shamanic powers right there and then and changed his name to John. <clears throat> right. <laughs> <laughs> right. General feelings. Um, I would have preferred an end in chapter 14. I felt 15 was... Whilst it was kind of setting up for the next book, it, it was a bit weak. It was a bit of a weak ending when 14 was so powerful... Um, it was so much, it, it, it was a lot. It could have just ended on Lee dying. Oh, man. Rather than then going for uh, 15 where it's kind of like, it just takes away from that a little bit and stunts it because it's just a less exciting chapter. And then I would have taken chapter 15 and put it as, ch- say, chapter two or three of the third book. So you start out on, some, on a high somewhere else, like with Asriel, for instance. And then you come back to this and you're coming you're kind of just coming back to what's happened, and then Grumman you know, they find Grumman, that's a tie back to the previous book, and then Grumman is killed almost immediately, which would seem clumsy no matter where you put it. Um, and then we'd get into the story, but it would feel like a a starting point for it, rather than a weird kind of half ending, which I just wasn't super, super keen on keen on. There we are.
2: I mean I agree with you in the sense that I really enjoyed chapter 14 and I had issues with chapter 15, um, but I don't know. I do feel like the main, like a big point of book two is just that we're following Will and his dad on parallel tracks. And so I think it does make sense to end with them finally meeting, um, but I have a different way to fix that problem that I'll talk about later. Um, Yeah. And also, I just think that chapter 15 reveals or emphasizes Pullman's main weakness, um, which is that even though he's really, really good at character most of the time, if there's sex or romance involved, it's just terrible. Like, he can't (laughs) do it. So, yeah. That's both of my big problems with chapter 15 have to do with either like sex or romance coming in in some way. I don't
0: I was I think I was going to bring this up later, but I don't know if I would say he can't do it so much as I think in this particular instance he was a little bit too married to his theme mm. about how, you know, he wanted to show that Will doesn't understand.
3: Right, right, right. Right
0: now, you know mm-hmm. like but I I definitely like and he was he was just too he was too caught up in that and i think if he'd just let that go he could have killed off grooman differently and it would have worked better
3: you'd be like yeah. A- yeah adult romance is incomprehensible you'd be like no this behavior is incomprehensible it's not yeah
1: yeah, <laughs> yeah. this is this isn't normal yeah. romance if someone <laughs> tried to kill me because i dumped them i'd be like you're absolutely insane this isn't like normal how you react to being spurned by a potential lover like, murder suicide 10 normal. years
2: after the fact you're saying is not a normal way to approach romance
1: um well I I haven't been murdered yet so <laughs> I'm going to assume <laughs> and I don't feel like murdering anyone particularly either so it, it's it, like the 10 year part, point has passed after this I'm safe
3: yeah <clears throat> statue. <laughs> Would you hmm so like just as this isn't part of our structure or anything, but like you got me thinking, in terms of the show, like, where do you do you think this will be the ending of the show, or do you think they'll restructure it the way that you're saying, you know, like we end on a Lee dies and then credits and then it's like,
2: what?
1: I think they'll do that. I think it's a much more powerful mm-hmm. ending. And I think that knowing how they've done the things so far they do seem to enjoy that sort of um, ending and then would get like a few shots from season 3 which they've like pre-done for some fun and be like in the next season X, Y and Z
2: except then they have to pay Grumman or the actor who plays Grumman for season 3 whereas otherwise they can just be like sorry you're done
1: no they'll just pre-film it in the end of season 2
2: but I think the way the Screen Actors Guild works you get paid depending on like what they would still have to rehire him if the footage gets aired in season 3. I don't know. Does that apply I'm to pretending the like United I understand the business.
1: Kingdom? What? Does that apply when shooting in the United Kingdom? I'm not sure.
2: I don't know. Also, I don't really know that much about how actors get paid. So, I should probably stop talking.
1: He was paid if for you're an actor one. and on Twitter, can you uh, <laughs> send us a message telling us how it works? <laughs> Or will the Screen Actors Guild come and take you away?
0: Okay, so I know very little, uh, because most of what I know has to do with theatre. But if you appear on screen, and they're making money off of you appearing on screen, unless you have the shittiest agent alive, you're going to make
1: money. I'm not not saying they won't make money. I'm just saying he won't make all the money from all of the other episodes. Oh, yeah. I'm just... I'm
2: just yeah, saying I- that's why they have all the Boromir flashbacks and the Two Towers and the Return of the King, because Sean Bean needed to get paid.
3: <laughs> I mean, John Perry's in season one. He did get paid for season one, so why not? Okay. but uh that's Yeah. I don't know. I don't I don't know if they'll do that. I feel like the internet would revolt if they tried to do that.
2: It's just, you I can think- definitely tell on, like, the episodes of... For instance, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, where it's like, there's one scene with that one character in the credits, and it's like, you didn't need to be in this episode, but they were contractually obligated to include you, so they did it anyway. <laughs> like, that kind of stuff does influence the structure of TV shows. It's true.
3: It does. Again, what I would love...
0: Back
2: to our original
0: conversation about how this is going to end. Yeah. I think you're all forgetting that television is a different... Storytelling medium than a book, and they can easily just intercut these two scenes, mm. so that they just yeah. happen at the same time. Oh,
3: that would be interesting too—to have oh, Lee really- die like- at the moment that gruman dies, or something like that. Like boom, boom—you know? Ooh, yeah.
1: With like Iron by Woodkid playing in the background, so it's like <laughs> super epic. <laughs> yeah, of course. <laughs> that would be so. That would be good. I would like that. Yeah. It would give a really good juxtaposition between the futile defence of, well, I suppose not actually all that futile defence of Lee, and um, this relatively, like, tense, but very differently tense moment with um, in the other part with yeah. Will and Lyra, which and for like- the most part is still basically sleeping and... Bit of talking, and then you've got the parallels between Will and Lee where they're both fighting. One of them is fighting to protect Grumman, one of them is fighting to hurt Grumman. Like, that would be so cool. And then just as Lee dies, Grumman dies. Sorry, I'm done.
0: Or Hester saying, You know, we're doing this for Lyra, just as Grumman breaks his oath.
3: Yeah, that's what I was thinking too. That's great. I really. Wait, how does Grumman break his oath? He he consciously chooses to.
2: Because he told. Um, Will that he would that his goal was to protect Lyra and that the knife would be used specifically to protect Lyra. He told Rad. Lee that.
1: Uh, yeah. Sorry.
2: Is that not what I said? You said Will. You said no, Will. Well. Oh yeah, sorry. <laughs> sorry. He told Lee that. Um yeah. Lee's whole cost for this or price was like, whatever they do,
0: Grumman had to swear that this knife was gonna be used to help Lyra, to help and protect Lyra. And Grumman was like, Yep, sounds good. And then when will said what should i do he was like uh you got to go to lord asriel and didn't mention lyra at all
1: yeah i would well because gruman is um consistent where he says that helping asriel will help lyra because it helps us all that's Mm -hmm. his belief and so he doesn't he's it's a bit of lying by omission but he's basically saying you need to help asriel because if asriel's not helped then the authority wins and we all get punished. So that is the best way that we can help because it's preventing the end of the world.
0: I don't necessarily disagree with you, but the text in the book says he consciously breaks his...
3: Okay. Yeah, like we see mm. it into his heart and mind via the narrator and he like consciously like, well, sorry, Lee, I guess you'll have to haunt me. And then he like tells him <laughs> Oh yeah, that's right.
2: Because do. Lee does promise that. Yeah.
3: So... I'm just
1: gonna read that back whilst you guys continue talking. <laughs> it it's in there.
3: Yeah, that's I love that um that editing suggestion. I hope we do get something like that. That would to intermix these would be really interesting. I think just from what, you know, it's like sparking in us, there's a lot of stuff there to dig up. Reading these parts for me, I felt like I would definitely read A Western by Philip Pullman. Like, I think this like chapter fourteen is great. His descriptions of like the bullets ricocheting off stone and whining as they like go off or like Lee smoking cigars and quipping with Hester. And, you know, just like, I'm shooting other men who look like me. And she's like, yeah, it makes no sense. Just keep doing it. Shut up. Just keep doing (laughs) it. It's really good stuff. Yeah. Uh And uh, I think Lee makes Boromir look like a chump. In terms of like a last stand, he takes out a Zeppelin with one shot. I don't even know how many bad guys were on there, but like, you know, he goes out like a Viking.
0: When I read that note here, (coughs) Mm -hmm. I was really trying to figure out what the fuck you even, like what the (laughs) comparison between Lee and Boromir was. (laughs) But now that you say that, I
3: understand. Yeah. They walked all over Boromir. Nobody got past Lee. Sorry, Sean Bean. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And I love the way that like fate pulls will along until the very end, you know, like he, he gets, you know, his father tells him like what to do. And he gets this moment where like he transitions into this kind of violent manhood where he's got this witch and he's like abusing her physically in a way that feels very like that whole scene feels very charged um, to me, like in a gendered way about like anger and like rage and uh, and all of this stuff that is like entering into his manhood in a really kind of toxic way and like his role as a warrior and as using the knife against the authority and all of this stuff and then even an angel shows up and then at the very end, where we get all of that pulling along of fate and his role. It's all like undermined because like, where's Lyra? I'm not even, I can't even think of anything else than other. Where is my best friend in the world? The person I love. Like, I love how like friendship is magic in his dark materials. So, mm-hmm.
0: uh, Are we still on general feelings? <laughs> yes. Yep. Don't yes, look at the okay. timestamp. It's fine. <laughs> okay. Bloody hell. So... Mine is just that the ending of this book felt like, like as I mentioned last time, that it was all very Empire Strikes Back, that we don't really get an ending. It's all just a bunch of setup, which is not necessarily bad. People love Empire Strikes Back. Um, It's just not, it's not a conclusion. Mm -hmm. That's my general feelings.
2: So does the ending of this book make you excited for book three? How do you think it compares to the end of book one? It's
0: hard for me to say since I've read book three a lot, uh, but I will. S- I do recall when I first read this book, I was in grade nine or ten, I forget, and I immediately went home and looked up online if the third book was out, and it had like just come out in North America. So I definitely skipped school the next day to go buy it and read it all day. Nice.
2: <laughs> That's fair. Yeah, I definitely felt pretty excited. To go ahead and read book three, um, I don't think it's quite as good as the ending of book one. Um, but considering how mad I was about parts of chapter fifteen, I'm I'm like very excited to see what comes next. Um, although actually, I think I'm more excited now, my second time through, than I was the first time through. The first time through, the like the madness uh, was more prominent and now i'm kind of like i knew what was coming and i was prepared and so i'm just excited about the good parts
3: (laughs) right
1: Hmm. i don't remember the end of book one (laughs) (laughs) so i mean i can't really compare but book three like again as caitlin said it's really hard to, to disentangle when you know what book three is like and like i really like book three so it does make me excited to get onto my favorite book of the series. But I'm not sure if it's necessarily because of the end of book two that I'm excited to get onto book three, except in the idea that the ending of book two means the dawn of book three for me. Yeah.
3: Yeah. I mean, I, I think this gives a lot of energy into going into book three. I feel like it's less, like Caitlin said, it's less of an ending than book one for sure. And so I think it does push you towards book three. I think you could read book one. And never continue. Like if that book had just come out by itself, I think it could stand alone and you'd be like, you would kind of like have fan fiction or whatever in your head of like what happens next. But this one like demands more story. It's, it doesn't feel like an ending.
2: Yeah. Okay. So uh, favorite parts.
3: I mean, I already said mine, which is just that Will doesn't even hear his destiny. They're they're like, and you will take the weapon and uh, confront the authority. And he's like, where's Lyra? Where the fuck is Lyra? (laughs) And that's all he can think about. I just love that.
0: Mine is the same at the end when everybody's like, Will, you're a warrior. You have to take this knife and you have to go to to Lord Asriel. That is your destiny. And Will just says, fuck that.
1: (laughs) It's So good. I really like... The I I agree with that that ending. It reminds me of if you've ever seen Doctor Horrible's Sing Along vlog Right at the end of <laughs> yeah. that, um, Neil Patrick Harris singing, "And I'm fine," and just it cuts to him just sitting, like, huh. Mm. This this was a hmm. this is like this is this is all great and all, and there's all these good things, all these kind of interesting things, but that doesn't matter because Lyra's gone, or in his case, Penny's gone. Penny, <laughs> I think it's Penny. Please, um, sure. yeah whoever felicia day plays um yeah. my favorite part is hester i absolutely love hester as a character i think she is she's is so interesting in that she is this incredibly pragmatic element of lee which is obviously entirely missing from lee as a person well it, it, she is that element of lee i suppose you could say yeah. and so hester just being like you've got to do this come on Like she just drives him forward and he's it's the oh where it is kind of reminds me in this very strange way of uh, that scene in Harry Potter where uh, Harry is feeding Dumbledore the um, horrible, horrible uh, liquid and he, he, Dumbledore's like no I don't want it and, uh, Joe, and Joe who the hell is Joe <laughs> <laughs> um, JK Rowling you mean <laughs> Joe Perter um, and Harry is uh, is just like no it, it'll all be fine Like, it's just like we've got to do this and just very kind of single minded in that despite it tearing him apart and I feel that in Hester she's like like, you know, she she's she's hurting just as much as Lee is about this whole thing, but she's also like, You have to do it. Come on, next thing And she shows a bit of emotion all of a sudden, kind of out of nowhere, where she's like, No, this is all my fault. Um, I I did a stupid thing and Lee's like, No, no, I, you know, whatever makes you think I'd listen to you And we all know that <laughs> Lee listens to Hester. Hester makes that. all the sensible decisions <laughs> and and Lee just like goes, Ah, oh, I suppose so, yeah, sure, why not? <laughs> So I like to think that. This is that one he...
0: thing. Oh, sorry.
1: No, I was just saying. I, I like. I like to think. I like to think that uh, when he was deciding what to do with his life, Hester was like, "We should, you know." Was like we should get a balloon. He's like, "No, we should get a balloon."
0: <laughs> <laughs> I really like this dynamic that that Philip Pullman has created with the the human and their and their demon, or the the body and their demon, or whatever. Yeah. Because like Lee's death would have been sad without Hester there. But like talking out his life and his and his death with himself, it because Hester is him, it makes it so much more tragic.
3: Yeah. Oh my god. And it just makes it so like
1: <clears throat> when he's feel like
3: feel so much for them. Don't go before me. It's like, oh Jesus yeah. Christ. Yeah.
1: <laughs> I, I, think I it's completely one, one of the most emotional I, I've felt from a book, full stop. Mm. It's a really good scene. Yeah.
2: <laughs> I completely agree with everything that you guys have said and and honestly, like, this is the first point in which I feel like I really get all of the Hester love. Because, um, mm. like, you, Kate especially, I think, have been talking about how much you love Hester as a character. And and mm-hmm. this whole time I've been kind of like, eh, I guess she's alright. Um, and, like, this is the scene where I I, like, feel like I finally get that. And I can see, I can imagine how, like, going back and rereading the books now, I would, like retroactively have more love for the character.
3: Mm-hmm. That's how it works.
2: Okay, so least favorite part. I want to go first. Fuck that I witch. I <clears throat> yeah. Oh my god. I hate this so much. This is my least favorite thing in both books by far. Ugh. Yep. Ugh. Can I... Okay, there's so many reasons why I hate it. I hate it because it's like yet another flat cardboard cutout of a female character who's only motivated by their relationships with men in a completely illogical way that makes no sense. It's so dumb. I mean, he kind of set it up ahead of time, but it was, like, so many chapters ago. Um, It still feels like it's coming out of nowhere. Um, This character, uh, whatever, Yuda, Judah... Kamainen is worse than Rudiscotti. Um I just it I have like Miss Scarlet rage um, <laughs> thinking about this character. Um and also it just it feels like so contrived to have uh Grumman die like right as he's meeting Will but for no reason other than bitches be crazy. And I guess, I mean, Kate, what you said earlier about the theme of, like, young people, prepubescent children, like, not understanding romance Mm -hmm. makes me hate it 2% less. But, like, the theme doesn't work because that's not actual romance, like we already said. Like, that's not... It has... It shouldn't make sense to anybody, regardless of how old you are or how much you want to bone people. It just makes no sense. Um,
0: I do. I do wish like Philip Pullman had an opportunity when this witch was talking to Serafina earlier in the book to make it clear that, uh, let's say, the only words I can think of are adult desires, but that sounds stupid. But you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, (laughs) Like really just messed with this woman and fucked her up. You know, but like but Seraph like it, he could have made it clear that nobody else would have would have reacted this way.
2: Yeah. You know? I but, don't know. Because they're
0: not insane murderers.
3: Especially when I, un- you have like Seraphina and her relationship with um not John Favre. who am I trying to think of? Quorum. Yeah, with Fodder Quorum and we know that like they were together and now they're apart. And that all seems like to make a lot of sense, right? And to be like tragically romantic as opposed to like, if she was trying to tell you like earlier, like, yo, you are too obsessed with this human. Like you need to like cool it. And she's like, I can't, I must have him. Then maybe this, it would set this up more and it would show her to be more deranged or something. But it doesn't seem like when you, if Serafina is like the template for what witches are, this doesn't seem witchy. It seems nuts.
2: Yeah, exactly. And I understand that, like, Pullman needed Grooman to die in this moment, but it just seems like he went about it in the worst way and there would be much better ways to kill him off. Like, we know that he's really weak and drained from... trying to, or from successfully taking down three of the four zeppelins, and that, like, the reason why he couldn't take down the fourth one is because he was too weak and tired to do it. What if he, like, completely drained himself doing the spell to heal Will's hand, and it was, like, a sacrifice to heal his son and get his son onto his mission, and then the son didn't even do the mission? Like, I feel like that would have been so much better and more meaningful thematically than just like bitches be crazy random lady coming back from the past and shooting him with an arrow
0: yeah there is even another okay my knowledge of the books is getting mixed up in my brain i don't remember what has been talked about and what has not been talked about so i'm gonna say this vaguely but there is another death that he could have given him that would have added to plot that is to come that would have made sense that is true about groomen I'm yep. sorry, this is really vague. Francis gets it. Great. I know what you mean, yeah. Yeah, that it, it would have worked perfectly and it would have come back to to matter later too. So I don't know why he didn't just do that. I see.
2: Yeah, or like, even if he didn't want him to just like expire from like being his, having his batteries be drained, like maybe he could have gotten eaten by a specter or something and would have been too weak to protect himself. I feel like there were options. And then my other least favorite part, just because it was awkward, was, like, Mrs. Coulter trying to seduce Lord Boreal. I, like, Ruth Wilson is so good at the seduction side of Mrs. Coulter, and Philip Pullman's dialogue in the books is super not good. (laughs) Also, I feel like since I'm harping on the way that Pullman tends to write women in romance and, like, sex... um. I do want to just agree with um, what Alan pointed out as like the key exception to this that we've seen so far—the relationship between Serafina and um, that guy Farticorum. whose Farticorum. name I also cannot remember, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Farder Coram. F- yes, that was so well done, mm. um, and especially in the TV show, but even in the book, it like made sense and was well done.
1: Oh my God! I just realized, slightly well on topic on John Perry. I didn't realise that in the shows he's played by Andrew Scott, who plays Moriarty in Sherlock. Huh. Yeah. I, I, he just didn't look anything like it. He looked like he was a tennis champion or something.
3: <laughs> Will is the son of Moriarty? Hmm.
1: <laughs> he's the son of John Murray. It's, of, um...
0: it's all coming together. It's, yeah,
3: I can see the crossover that's going to...
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. BBC, please know. <laughs> <So> the, <laughs>
0: the Mrs. Coulter, uh, what's the word, I guess, seducing Boreal into, I, I don't know, giving her information, whatever. The, I, I genuinely don't even remember what she was trying to get him to say. Oh, about the knife. Uh, yeah, and, yeah. Right. That doesn't bother me for two reasons. A, this is a very different Boreal than TV show Boreal. hmm hmm And I can see this stodgy, older, you know, uptight British uh, evil dude... Falling for it, yeah. But uh, they have to do it different in the show because it's a completely different character.
1: Yeah, yeah. I think she'll just um, but, poison him, or I think she'll try, and then it won't work, and she'll just fucking kill him in some other way.
2: Yeah, like I that. don't know. But like, I think I would have appreciated it more if it was like a battle of wits, or she was like yeah. seducing him with like a combination of sex and logic, versus so, just like gently stroking his snake.
1: A (laughs) lie. Pardon? (laughs) (laughs) Must you? It's literally in there.
2: So, but that was (laughs) that snake is... It's funny because the snake is also female, so that makes it officially a girl dick metaphor. (laughs)
0: So... That was actually my other point of why it doesn't bother me, in that from their world, we have seen before that the interaction between the demons, not necessarily the words being spoken, can be more important.
1: Mm. Yeah, Mm. agreed. So
0: I think that's what he was going for in that scene. Whether or not he succeeded, I, I don't know. But I do think that that's what we were supposed to take away from that scene, which is why her dialogue is a little clunky, because it's not necessarily about what she's saying so much as the monkey gets the snake <laughs> to a point where it doesn't matter what she's saying, Boreal would, would give her whatever she wants.
1: A point of no return might you call it. <laughs> yeah. huh. I'm so sorry. <laughs> yeah. I just want to say uh.
0: for once it was Anya who brought us down this road and it was not me.
2: So. <laughs> Wait, am I not the dirty one? Because that's new. I might be mixing up my podcasts. Because there's definitely
0: <laughs> one one of the ones that I do where I am always the one that's like... Mm.
1: It turns out the dirty ones were the friends we made along the way.
2: Yeah, <laughs> I'm pretty sure I've talked about Girl Dick and Snakes before, but maybe that wasn't on air. Maybe that was just in our chat.
1: <laughs> Trust me, listeners, our chat isn't this bad. Okay, I, I lied. It's terrible. <laughs>
0: uh, oh, oh! so my actual least favorite part, though, yes. is uh, Mrs. Coulter can magically control the specters. Excuse me? How? Why? Yes. When? Yes. Please, Why? please yeah. give me more. Like, I'm 100% cool with her doing it, but how? I
2: want to see that. I want to. What? Why? What? What? They don't seem like they respond to human language or logic.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: and that like throwaway
0: line about why they would listen to her i'm like sure okay but give us more and and why can she magically convince them that they can fly like
3: <laughs> right uh, yeah like Green does that too somehow he like gets it to go up yes. into the yeah into the airship yeah. and it's like like
0: i don't mind that it happens yeah, yeah i just yeah. want more in infra- for i want to see it i want to see you know, I don't just want to throw away line about it. I want to see the whole damn thing.
3: This is, is exactly my problem, too. It's like there should have been more Mrs. Coulter. She should have been more of a presence in the book of like, you know, like Lord Boreal is the main bad guy, basically. But all of a sudden, it's like <laughs> I in my own like personal like uh, how to write stories you know, a bunch of rules that I made up for myself. I call this the Dragon Ball Z principle where you have like (laughs) a bad guy who like gets taken out by another bad guy to show you that the new bad guy is the worst bad guy. And so like Lord Boreal sure was a bad guy, this whole book. Oh, but look who's worse, Marissa Coulter. And it's like, yo, we already knew that. Like we should have just had her through the whole book instead of, If you're going to do this, if it's going to be her coming out on top, it should have been the two of them fighting with each other more. We should have been following her and how she achieves her goals more. Like, make her more of a character in this book for this ending. Like, it doesn't, I don't think it works as well as it could.
2: Agreed. Yeah, agree 100%.
3: (laughs) And they're like, what does that have to do with Dragon Ball Z? But if you've ever watched Dragon Ball Z, you would know what I'm talking about.
0: Please don't waste your time watching the bullshit that is Dragon Ball Z.
3: Yeah, I can. Yeah, that's that's good <laughs> advice.
0: I maybe just offended a lot of people. Sorry.
1: We're, it's fine. We can fix it in post. Say so yeah. whatever you wanted to say. <laughs> um, yeah, my, my my least favorite part was the same about Grooman's death, kind of sucking, and the reasoning for it being bad because it's just sort of meh. I don't care that much. Like, after all of this. So, uh, we talked before about the sort of meta story of Grumman and how uh, this whole thread running through it Grumman's had another whole life, which could be a whole whole other book. And then he dies in the most ignoble kind of way. And it just could be better. It just could be. There there were so many. I would have felt more satisfied if his heart had stopped because he had a heart (laughs) condition. That would be more satisfying.
3: Oh, like he like, saw Will, and he was like, "Oh my God, it's you! Yeah, look just, just, just like my mother!" And then keels over. Yeah,
1: yeah. Like, like I would have been more satisfied but because at least it wouldn't have been this bullshit with this completely irredeemable witch who only exists for this purpose. You don't. You, the only yeah. times you hear about her are basically when she's talking about Grumman. She is literally not a character.
3: Yeah.
2: Yes. Oh, my God. Say
0: more. You could replace her
1: with a bear trap and she'd be just as charismatic.
2: Yeah.
0: (laughs) She and Rudaskati, like, serve the same purpose, which is to affect the stories of men. Mm
3: -hmm.
2: Yeah. Their names are even, like, basically the same name. And I think that's, like, part of why I got them confused. Like, earlier in previous episodes when I was ranting about how much I hated Rudaskati, I think I just, like, merged these two characters in my head
1: so funny i hadn't mm. even thought about it like that <laughs> for me sitting there like i need another throwaway female witch character well we've got seraphina we've got ruta let's call her Yuta. juta juta <laughs> yeah oh shit yeah deadline's coming up let's go juta, yeah. Fucking
2: juta, yeah juta juta maddie like, <laughs> a
1: serious? cardboard
2: witch character A cardboard witch character whose like only real personality trait is that she once fucked a man or wanted to fuck a man.
1: Like a cardboard cutout of Ruta Scardi, but with like just a face crudely painted on and being wiggled by someone in the background, (laughs) slightly damp from the rain.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Oh yes, yes.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I am a witch! I don't forgive! (laughs) It's like the potter puppet pals. What's that sound? It's toxic toxic masculinity. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> if we need an intro to this season, that's gotta be it. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um are we done with least favorite parts?
0: I think we have talked Thanks. them to death.
1: <laughs> okay, good. On to problematics. <laughs>
0: Wait, the same thing we just talked about.
1: My major, uh, I only had one problematic, and I think it's something we touched on a bit before, which was Pullman has a approach to shamanic traditions which just feels colonialist. It really, It's really hard to say exactly why, but the metaphor I wrote down here was it's kind of like the way that someone will claim to solve things using Asian herbs. <laughs> and it's used to disguise basically bullshit, playing on this ignorant viewpoint to say, well, I, I wrote here racist viewpoint, and it is, um, to say, you don't understand it because it's Asian herbs being used by Asians to, to solve your stuff. And he's, he, he does the same thing with shamanism, where he's saying it's shamanism because they're using shaman things to do things outside of the realm of your comprehension because you're not a shaman and they're the feral shamans like, when did you ever hear the word shaman used to describe a white guy it's, it's not it's, even in like, if if you're talking about um, even though the the actual sort of philosophies are very similar between kind of paganism in Europe and shamanism elsewhere they're basically exactly the same fucking thing. They are uh, traditional belief systems based around things like land use and like, you know, all the things that a, a philosoph all the things that a culture needs in terms of philosophy. And, but if it's European, then we call it paganism. I mean, <laughs> uh, well, not even just European, kind of going a bit further into, you know, a few, a few kind of on the other sides. It's still basically paganism. And then, as soon as it becomes done by people who aren't similar to us, suddenly it's the shamans. It's the shamans. They're going to do it because they use magic beyond your comprehension. But no one's ever sat there and said the druids will do this. He used druidic (laughs) magic. That would have been so, like, that would have been just as similar to what he's saying. And yet, not for a second did he think that maybe he'd whack on a token mistletoe, a sickle.
3: (laughs) That's exactly right. Yeah. Because there's like this whole notion that comes out of the colonialist period and like the early imperialist period, which are like, you know, history is like divvied up in ways that are arbitrary and not real. uh, That is like, oh, there is a kind of evolutionary chart of societies, right? Of like, this is a primitive society. This is a moderately advanced society. This is a modern society. Oh, what a coincidence. Europe is modern. And all of yeah, you But
1: Europe was never primitive. No, never. Idea.
3: No, no, no. It was always like on its way to being modern, right? It's it's always yeah. more sophisticated. And it's all actually it's the same thing. It's
1: exactly the same thing because it's the the transition over time. Like everyone started out from a state I mean, you you could argue that everyone started out from a state of no philosophy and then they develop it as they develop consciousness. Um, I mean, they, that, that's probably its its whole other category of um, kind of philosophical debate is early philosophy. That would be really cool. I don't know much about that. I would like to know more. Um, but yeah, you, you look at how the Gauls are disp- depicted and how the early Britannic tribes are d- depicted. Um, and they're never, ever depicted as these, well, it's certainly in uh, Western imperial culture. They're never depicted as these sorts of feral monstrosities, which other people are. But actually, I reckon that if you look at uh, contemporaneous sort of Roman, uh, Roman writings, well, in fact, if you, I know that if you, if you look at uh, some of the ways that the Romans depict the Gauls, then they are, again, these outsiders, these weird, weird folk who you believe in magic, and they don't believe in the civilised gods... They don't believe in our gods, which we know to be real, so it's sort of a very similar thing. And mm-hmm. I'm guessing that the Romans don't address their origins as being, um, put, you know, uncultured and uncivilized. It was like, oh, we were young, oh, but yeah. these uh, these yeah. Picts, these um, you know, these tribes over here, Picts, and the uh, oh, what they begin the one of them begins with the sea and it's the origin of the in Yorkshire, I think. Um, but yeah, like these were all, you know, they were they were the scary people, and they'll those people's birth essentially where we are today and we look back them and we're like no no they weren't, they weren't like uncultured and uncivilised they were just you know a bit different and then we developed technology and then we developed oppression of the poor and then we <laughs> developed it further right. and then in the industrial revolution and that was just because we're better we're just, we just got there first because we are more um, willing to oppress the populace something like that yeah but we're just better I don't know. Getting back to my original point, it's the approach to shamanism is sort of used as a deus ex machina. It's sort of, oh, we need to get out of this situation. Well, maybe we can use this to make par- you know, just to make sure that everyone's absolutely sure that John Parry the white guy who's turned up at this random place in the middle of the Arctic and has gone, "Yep, um I'm I've got a lot of knowledge which you guys don't have because my world has done some cool stuff." and so i'm going to be a shaman and then suddenly he has magic power like it's it's a weird contradiction of colonialism none of which really makes sense to me
3: yeah i think part of the reason why it's narratively dissatisfying is what we talked about last time with like the laws of magic according to brandon sanderson in terms of like how they operate in a narrative that we don't understand the shamanism of john perry like in terms of its mechanics And therefore it has dissatisfying consequences or like, how are you manipulating these specters? How do you make lightning happen over here? You just do it because of shamanism and that shamanism is couched in like, like you said, racist colonialist kind of othering of, uh, of these people and all they have to offer us is this mysterious magic, right? Mm -hmm. There's, there's nothing else there in terms of the Tartars. They don't have any kind of interior culture or like we don't even get an actual tartar shaman we get a white guy who is like appropriated their one useful ability for us
1: yeah Yeah. and it's it's not to say that you can't integrate between cultures what it's saying is that it seems so super shoddy that the only um the only shaman that we encounter is a white british guy like you you literally couldn't write it if you tried to write the most colonial pastiche of a novel, you're like, okay, so um, we're going to have this ancient, uh, you know, this ancient shaman, he's got magic, he's using these tribal magics, and he's a British white guy. Like, seriously?
3: (laughs) (laughs) Right. (laughs) Yeah. Oh,
1: God. It's
3: pretty problematic.
1: But, like, uh, again, I'm probably reading a touch too into it, but it's kind of hard. Once you latch onto it, it's hard not to go, well, that's just... Sort of lazy when we're gonna go so far into the um you know into the philosophy of Christian culture, but we won't do a thing to touch on um other religions yeah. at all and uh, I find illegal. this to
0: be i this is another point that we've talked about before, but I find it so upsetting because as we will see in the third book it, uh, Philip Pullman can write somebody going into a completely alien culture and experiencing it in a non as far as I remember non-problematic way but he had to do it in a mythical way you know he couldn't do it with humans spoilers
1: Mm -hmm. (laughs) who knew
2: um so while we're talking about colonialist bullshit um I uh came across a twitter thread recently about an Real life asshole colonialist Arctic explorer, also named Perry, although spelled slightly differently, um, a Robert Perry. We say um, it differently who, here. How would you say that?
1: Perry versus Parry, or I mean, <sighs> that, that's that's Perry. So a long Perry. air. They're Perry. They're both Perry. Versus Perry. Perry. Perry and Perry. Perry. Parry. Perry.
3: <sighs> All I can I think know. about Perry. is a duck billed platypus with a hat who is a secret agent now. If you get that reference, please follow I, us on I, MOT pod and let me know on Twitter.
2: <laughs> I did okay, get I'm the gonna talk about this Twitter thread. Um, so basically, I mean, you should just read the thread because it's um, really fascinating and full of good pictures. Um, and I can't, I'm not going to do it justice here, but um, basically there was this like completely self-sufficient group of Inuits living in Greenland, um, and they had this meteorite that they used as their source of iron that they used to make um, like tools and blades that they used um, for hunting and other things that they needed to do. And then um, in the late 1800s, a bunch of Europeans came to Greenland, discovered these meteorites, And we're like, great, let's take these home and put them in our museums. And so now they're like scattered in museums around Europe. um, And there's one in the Museum of Natural History in New York um, and basically made it so that uh, the the native culture on Greenland was no longer self-sufficient because they no longer had a source of iron. They also literally kidnapped some people and. Took them to New York. Um, they told them that they would bring them back to Greenland in a year, and then um, didn't. Well, most of them died of disease, but um, the one that did survive um, wasn't able to go back until many, many, many years later. So I don't know. It just <laughs> it made me think a lot about this book and the way that Pullman describes, you know, like Arctic exploration. And a lot of... The book just seems to have, like, a very colonialist point of view that is, like, not well-interrogated at all. I agree. Uh, Like, especially
0: because, like, things like that show, it would have been so easy to make John Perry Inuit. It would have made sense for his whole story because it would have made sense about why he wanted to become an explorer, you know? And it would have made sense for why he ended up in this other world and tried to find people that he knew that he, you know, that he could connect with. Like, it, it would have been good.
3: Mm-hmm. I agree. That would have been. That's a missed opportunity for sure.
1: Yeah.
2: Okay, so science. I'm going to go on another rant here. It's a short one. Don't worry. And it's also kind of minor, but offended me greatly based it on words, though, it? my it's science. Short. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. So... Uh, when they crash into the forest and the balloon is wrecked on the trees, um, the, the book says, uh, now he, referring to Lee, had to move like an insect along the surface of the earth as, like, he's super sad, you know, he, like, identifies as an aeronaut, flying is his thing, and now he's, like, taking it really hard, um, that, you know, his balloon is broken, and... And now he just has to walk around on the earth like a plebe. Has Philip Pullman ever met an insect? Most of them have wings. Like of all the organisms (laughs) to be trapped crawling along the surface of the earth, an insect is not one of them.
1: No, no. Could have chosen millipede. Didn't.
2: Or or like anything, anything that's not an insect. He could have said rodent. He could have said rodent, he could have said reptile, he could have said, <laughs> we don't, I don't know. We don't need to
1: list literally all the things that don't fly. <laughs> he
2: could have said It's human. most things that aren't insects. But he could also, you know, he could and have birds. said polar bear.
3: Could it's have said interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I, I took this line, I'm not really disagreeing with you. I took this line to be like <laughs> about, like he is not able to walk and he's like on his belly, like he's hurt, but maybe I'm wrong. But, but the insects can fly. But they, like, walk, you know, like, they use all of their limbs to walk. But he could walk as well. (laughs) No, but he can't. I thought he couldn't. Like, that's what I mean. I thought that it meant that he was, like, on his belly, like, kind of army crawling on the ground. you know what I mean? Oh,
2: I don't think he Mm -hmm. was that injured. I I definitely interpreted it as being about the balloon being broken. Mm -hmm.
3: Um, Well, then this is extra bad writing because it led me to believe the wrong thing about Lee's capability in that moment
2: Uh. anyway yeah there's like insects are all up in the atmosphere like hundreds of meters there's like whole studies where they just like see how high insects go they're super high up there anyway that's end of rant okay insects fly TLDR
1: <laughs> I'm going to look it up again
2: Oh no, you're trying to figure out who's right, me or Alan?
3: It's weird um, that now that you say that, that his demon is like a burrowing mammal is like interesting when he's an aeronaut. Yeah,
2: I mean, I guess that there are bats that fly, right? But when you compare like bats versus all other mammals versus insects that fly versus all insects, like the comparison is... It's orders of magnitude different.
1: Yeah. I can't find the reference, and I don't care that much.
2: (laughs) Wow. Normally, you'd love to gloat about me being wrong.
0: I mean, Um, I don't have any... Like, I didn't look up uh, anything about this, although maybe I should have, but I really did enjoy how uh, technical the balloon chase scene was. And how, like, Lee was shown to be very capable and very, like, he wasn't just floating along and hoping with the wind. He was like, okay, if I do this, we'll go faster. We can do this. We can do this. And I, I can control this. And he was shown to be, like, doing math in his head. And I really liked how it showcased how smart and capable Lee was and not that he was just floating along with the wind.
2: Yeah, I completely agree. And I think that I felt a reader that I understood the logic behind what lee was doing the whole time and that that was a really fun experience to have i love too how you know he he like takes all his instruments with him because they're like expensive and small um and transportable even though he's leaving the other things behind you know it's just like little things like that that make the writing really pop
3: i agree
1: yeah, um I did I did find the bit and yeah, it it's definitely that he can um I mean, they are lying down at the time that he thinks this. Okay. Cuz they're talking they're talking about that he's lying down, but also I do think that it's much more of a metaphor on the fact that he can't fly anymore rather than he is necessarily crawling cuz he doesn't crawl really. They get up again. Oh. Okay. They don't have to commander crawl for like hours. Which would have been fine. (laughs) Weird. (laughs) Um, In terms of science, the the spectres interest me because I don't actually feel they're consistent. And I feel that that's, again, as we were talking about earlier, a magic system which is consistent is satisfying and one which is not is frustrating. Um, If the spectres are incorporeal, which it's sort of implied that they are, then... Is it the ground that they can't go through? Is it only human buildings that they can enter? Like, it just doesn't quite make sense because you can't just... like like. Otherwise, surely the best tactic by far would be to hide under the ground then when you detect a, a human coming up, then you pick them off. And then you could get it to be a... We, we, like, we, we show later when they almost negotiate with Coulter that they can get more if they follow her... Then, if they if they have enough sense of awareness to optimize that problem, then surely they have enough sense of awareness to say, if we scare everybody off, then there's no one here anymore. If we just pick people off once every once in a while, just like a um a sort of sit and wait predator, then that's that's fine. We can just kind of continue, and they won't run away, and thus we'll have a constant supply of food. Yeah, it just feels big, consistent.
3: It is weird. I think yeah. I but, think it's I think it's what Caitlin said so much earlier about all of this that he's like thinking about his themes and like really working those themes and not paying attention to how they're like a literal thing in the world that needs to mm. make sense you know
1: <laughs> yeah yeah agreed and again like I, I feel like with the co- the conf- the implied confrontation between john parry and the and the specters i think it could have been a cool like. Gandalfian you shall not pass like it's basically implied to be that and then we just don't see any of it it's like come on <laughs> like the cool things you're just skipping over again you're making it into this this shamanic tradition to do whatever they want and you don't get to see because they are mysterious why are they mysterious? because uh, <laughs> I thought it out that's why
3: yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't know What's going on with Lee there where he's like kind of seeing it? Is he getting like caught up in Grumman's thing or like Hester's like, if I hadn't known you were a seer, I would have cured you of that a long time ago. Like I out don't the even have a hand. Yeah, she exactly. She's like, a bit of conversion. Cut therapy. it out. <laughs> yeah. Christ. So like, so I don't get
2: my that. head cannon. My head canon for that is that um, Grumman is, is like, kind of using energy from uh, Lee to, like, fuel some of what he's doing. Interesting. Which is, like, well, I mean, okay, from a meta-textual perspective, the reason why Lee has visions is because Lee is our point-of-view character, and so if Lee doesn't see it, we, the reader, don't get to see it, and Pullman wants us to know what's happening. Um That's true. But within Net- the text... If if um, Grumman is, like, using Lee as some sort of, like, anchor or power source, then that could be why he has visions of what's happening.
1: Mm. Yeah, because we never see Grumman as a POV character at all.
3: Yeah. Yeah, almost never. Although his narrator's all over the place. Like, sometimes, <laughs> like, I don't, I don't know that I agree that we have to be with Lee, like, because he just leaves sometimes people or like jumps from one head to another. Not that it's ever confusing, which is hard to do and takes good writing. I don't know. I'm, I'm not complaining about all this stuff. Like I just wasn't sure what was going on there or what I'm supposed to think is going on. It's just kind of supposed to be spooky, right? It's supposed to be like, oh. Yeah.
1: yeah. It's meant to feel like a fever dream, I think. And it does. Yeah. Like it's, it's well done in that it's very disconnected. It's very sort of classic trip scene in a film
3: yeah
0: I don't know why but I've never even questioned it Hmm. Mm -hmm. like it now that we're talking about it why does Lee see this I don't know I guess I just always assumed it was his proximity to what to what um, Grumman Perry was doing I don't know but it never bothered me either way
1: was it just shaman things were happening close to him, and thus yeah. he got involved in the shaman things?
0: <laughs> yeah,
3: that's how it works, right? Who knows how it works?
1: I don't know. Yeah, no one knows. <laughs> no one knows.
3: <laughs> we can't. Pullman doesn't fucking it. know. That's for sure. <laughs> <Yeah>.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, if if you are listening, Philip Pullman, then my my apologies. There's no way I'm, he's listening. I can imagine. Well, we could always send I, it to him.
2: Yeah. I would prefer. I no, actually... no, no. I would prefer for him not
1: to listen. Onwards to religion.
2: I really loved how our science section
0: became about shamanism. Shamanism. <laughs> like, that was great.
3: This magical system is not systematic.
0: <laughs> and now religion. Now religion.
1: <laughs> That's why he's going to talk about hmm. science for the next 40 minutes. Yeah. About... Okay, so.
3: In Newtonian physics, there is. <laughs> Action and I'd li- I'd like that. I'd love it. So, of course, I I re- I reread the book before we started the podcast and then I've been reading along, you know, chapter to chapter, but like when I reread it, then I'm trying to think about, okay, what am I going to talk about on the podcast? And it was this part where John Perry is like explaining things to Lee, and I feel like for whatever reason John Perry I don't know that his insights are authoritative. They feel authoritative to me, like in a kind of narrative way of like, this is definitely what these things are. Um, But that might be arbitrary. He could be wrong. But that's how I'm taking it. And, And when I read the part where he talks about the specters, that's where I associated them with nihilism. And then I brought Nietzsche in like that. This is the origin of where it all comes from for me. Um, is he calls them the specters of indifference, right? And that they leave their victims kind of in this state of nihilism where they are just a body that exists and they don't care about anything. They don't have any beliefs or thoughts or self-awareness. And it's kind of like, You know, when you think about like the themes of these two books about how like your failures, your personal failures and your experiences kind of shape you and how you adapt to those and, you know, transgressing boundaries and stuff like that, how those things build up who you are as a person. If the specters are like sucking that out of you, it's kind of like the opposite of Nietzsche is the guy who came up with the aphorism, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger and and it's like they take everything away that makes you stronger that makes you you and all that's left is like nihilism so big
1: question then big question is Philip Pullman an anti nihilist
3: oh I think so like I think that he believes nihilism exists if that's what you mean and that you shouldn't give into it I think
0: I don't know if I agree with this uh...
3: reading so-
0: the English language just left my brain. Uh, comparison, I guess, between the specter victims and nihilism. Mm-hmm. Because nihilism is a like a philosophy. It's a choice that you make about the world. These people are are basically dead. Like their heart is still beating, but they are dead.
3: Yeah, they're like zombies, right? They've been like yeah. hollowed out. Yeah.
0: So I, it's not that they believe that nothing matters or think nothing matters. It's that they're not there. Yeah, so I,
3: I don't are they know if thus I... forced
1: into nihilism?
3: Right, that's Again, that's like how I read it in a fantasy sense. They're like literalized in a, you know, like in a material way. Into they're like the embodiment of nihilism.
0: I don't know. I don't. I don't see. I don't see the the metaphor there. I just think they're dead, but they're still
3: moving. I think that's really interesting. Uh, in terms of like, you know that that says something about um what it means to be alive. Right. Because <clears throat> there are people who argue, you know, and they're like the same kinds of people who will argue against abortion and things like that, that if a person is in a vegetative state and in a coma that they are, you can't kill them. Right. Cause they're still alive while other people argue, like there's nothing there. Like the person is not the body. Right. There there's yeah. something else there. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's really interesting. Because I, I think that is right. what the text is saying, right? It's saying like you are not your body in in this way, like there's something it, essential being taken from that.
0: I will say it's saying that you're not just your body. Right. Because as we're going to see it, in the next book especially, the body is important too. And <laughs> I guess I guess I'm not I'm not expressing myself correctly here maybe. Uh, I just don't think that this is a metaphor for anything other than the, the points that philip pullman has been trying to make that you you need that that passion i i don't think it's about nihilism because somebody who's a nihilist can still be just as passionate as anybody else about just things like about nihilism if they want to be i don't know but
3: <laughs> you know what i mean imagine like someone being passionately nihilist
0: <laughs> but you know what i mean right yeah, like, yeah that's that is them choosing to look at the world in a way these people are not looking at the world. They're not, they don't see anything. Like a nihilist, I feel like if they were watching their child drown, they would still maybe save their child. We have watched, we've seen these people watch their children drown.
3: Right. It, yeah. Cause they've been violated too. Right. They don't have a choice. Yeah. yeah.
0: So I don't know. I, it's, it doesn't make, it doesn't work for me.
3: Oh, I think that's a strong argument. Uh, I think the, just the word indifference there. I was like, oh, and it's like, what is he taken away? You know, what have these specters taken away from them? It seems like they've kind of taken away all their experiences and just kind of left the blank slate there. And I was like, oh, all your experiences are what builds you. And that's a theme in the story. And what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. So I'm definitely like doing my like, philosophical association and building my own bridge. Like I would, you know, like if I, if Philip Pullman was like, that's nonsense, this this isn't nihilism. I don't even know what that word means. I would be like, yeah, you're probably right. It's not, that's not what you were going for, but it is what I saw. Like, and it's okay that like, I think that you make a really good argument for them, not representing nihilism. But for me, like, Both of those things can be simultaneously true uh, in an English major sense.
0: Yeah, 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 absolutely. I mean, what we get from it is just as as important as what the author meant for us to get.
3: Yeah, and it's even if you're um, like, if I'm not allowed to build tenuous connections, like I don't even know how to interpret text because that's all I do. Um, (laughs) But that is the origin of where all my Nietzsche stuff comes from is the specters. You're right, though, that it, um, nihilism is a choice. Kind of. It's kind of a choice. Um, usually it's like a fear based thing, especially the way that Nietzsche describes it of like, oh, no, the world is more complicated than I thought. It's kind of like um, this is too dated. Maybe I shouldn't even say it. That guy from The Matrix who's like, I want to go back into The Matrix because everything's more complicated than I thought it would be. And I would just rather go back and eat steak. It's kind of like that. Yeah. which is definitely not happening with uh, when you get eaten by a specter. Um, sorry to
0: Sorry yeah. to derail you. I just thought I don't know, in my head I think it's more important to the story that they absolutely do not have a choice.
3: Oh yeah, no. I your yeah. argument is great. I love it. So, there's this whole thing of take up his mantle. We talked about this earlier, right? Is this a dad joke? I think it is. Um I think
0: we talked about that pre-recording. Oh, did we? <laughs> I think I genuinely don't remember. <laughs> it's been so long, who knows. I, <laughs> no, but I mean this is the problem with sometimes we just chat for 30 minutes. Mm-hmm. I I don't know.
1: I think we talked about it in the recording.
0: Great. I have no <laughs> idea anymore.
2: <laughs> okay, can we TLDR
1: just in case?
3: This? Well, yeah. basically for... like a mantle explain the dadro. Yeah, a mantle shows up Uh, as a metaphor in the Bible quite a bit in the Old Testament. And it is literally a thing that you wear somewhat like a cape. Um, And it's, uh, you know, it shows up among the prophets of the Old Testament. And it's about like handing down the mantle from one prophet to another. And it kind of like shows the power of God being on this person or that person There's like anointing with oil is another way that this is symbolized in the Bible. And we have it in our language because of that, you know, because of the Bible as like an idiom for kind of legacy, right? You take up the mantle of whoever you're in this case, your father. And so Will literally takes up the mantle of his father when he's in the cave because he's cold and he's like, this looks warm. And he literally picks up his mantle and puts it on just the way that his mother prophesied about him and said, you will take up your father's mantle. So there's like prophecy there, you know, from his mother, there's mantling there's, but it's also a dad joke because it's literally true. Like is the fulfillment of this prophecy that I always knew you would wear your father's weird Cape or is it, you know, like you will live in the legacy of your father and, uh, The same way that, like, Lyra is like, is she fated to live in the legacy of her mother and be kind of a manipulative liar the way that Mrs. Coulter is or like a a dangerous heretic the way that her father is? Or will she be her own person? You know, will will we, you know, will he be an explorer or will he transcend and become who he is?
0: I think there's. I'd like to point out that Lord Asriel is also a manip... A manip- oh, fuck. A manipulative... Sure. Liar. Uh, so she's got both of her parents on that one. Yeah. Um, But... Uh, so, A, everybody was... Well, not everybody. Will's mom said you'd take up your father's mantle. And then Will kind of took that to heart and kept telling Lyra... Or talking to it about Lyra also. But also, people keep telling Will that... You know, he's the bearer of a knife. He's a warrior. You know, and the book starts off with him killing someone and that that is his destiny, not this explorer thing. And even even Grumman, Perry, whatever, when he meets him before he realizes who it is, he says, you know, you're a warrior. You're the bearer of the knife. This is your destiny to go and fight for Lord Asriel.
3: Oh, that's interesting. So you're saying this is like a counter narrative to the, the, like this is maybe more fundamental to who Will is than what he's been otherwise told he is.
0: What I'm saying is a lot of people have been telling Will, this is what you are. Mm -hmm. That's all I'm saying. I'm not drawing conclusions yet because I actually know how Will's story ends. (laughs) We can talk about that later. But I'm just saying I think it's interesting that a lot of different people are telling Will, what and who he is like what his essence is and what his destiny is and he's just like i I don't know where's lyra (laughs) you know like
3: (laughs) yeah totally
0: and as as somebody who has been a teenager it is really fucking annoying (laughs) when adults tell you exactly what your life is gonna be
3: yeah like here in america we have a whole test about it pretty wrong like in you take in high school and it tells you you should be a cop or you should be you know this or that Which gets into the other thing, teleology. So this is exactly what you were saying, Caitlin, that everybody is telling Will what to do, that he must go and work for Lord Asriel or give him the knife or use the knife on his behalf, because there's been this recurring battle against the authority. There's these two sides of ignorance and of knowledge and ignorance is one every time. And now we have the weapon that can win the war. And Will is the bearer. And this is the way that we're going to do it. And, you know, everybody's telling him this is the direction to go, including his father. And, you know, like, to me, this parallels book one in the way that, like, Lyra has her own goals that have to do with her identity and with finding her father and who is she going to be exactly the way that you were saying she's, you know, the people who made her are these liars and these larger than life figures and the struggle on two sides. And will has like this legacy and, but who is he really? And what's his identity? Like there's parallels between these two characters and the way that their arc operates. And you know what Lyra has a place in this prophecy of like, she's going to, her fate is to destroy fate somehow. And, um, and so like, I see the ending as being like Lyra's ending, in the first book of like a rejection of all of his teleology that's been laid out for him. And he makes his own goals and kind of transcends or he, he doesn't make his own goal because like Lyra literally steps through the gate and we're just left with will kind of in this uh, precipice of decision where he's not listening to what his role is anymore. He's motivated by his feelings and by the person that he cares about and what she means to him and what he means to her. And, and that seems to be like the note that the book ends on and what is the most important thing to will. And to me, that feels like a rejection of his role. It feels like the heroic and good thing in the book. Um, and, and all of these other things, like, you know, otherwise you would, it, it'd be really easy to see the magisterium as like capital letters, the bad guys, right? And Lord Asriel as the good guy, because he's opposing the bad guys on a certain level. And so him going to Asriel, you'd be like, yeah, go to the good guys. But the book makes it more complicated than that, because Lord Asriel is also this teleological path for will, this kind of Predetermined, this is your role. You need to fill this place in our plan. Not that you are a person, you are literally a weapon to us. You are an instrument. And Will walks away from that in his heart here. You know, we'll see if he actually does that in the plot. But in terms of this moment, I think it's a rejection of his role. And, and like, that is heroic in the story of his dark materials. That's what it means to be a hero in these stories.
0: It It's interesting because we've talked before about how, you know, Lord Asriel's book exists. You know, people have been writing that story, the big war, good versus evil shit. You know, uh, you know what I mean? We've talked about that before. Yeah, the hero's and, journey. And so I, I do like how every time, or I do like any time that the story is like, yes. You have to go and be with the hero. You have to go fight the war. And Will and Lyra are like, actually, we got other shit we got to do. <laughs> that, <laughs> that's important to us. And how I, I just really like that and how the, the ending of this book does, does that again also.
3: It's great. I think that's why this book is like so important in fantasy. It's like it, it really subversive in a lot of ways. In exactly that kind of like we must go defeat the dark one and eh, actually being a hero is something else being a hero is like being true to yourself like listening to your conscience and not and necessarily I, being about like the greatest good for everyone right
0: i think will oh, not will sorry lee had had that line in chapter 14 about how oh, should, yeah. i should have written it down about you know doing the help where you see you, you can help yeah. Wow, yeah. I, I just butchered the fuck out of that. But, yeah, no, he says that <laughs> you know to what I mean.
3: That is a great that is a great yeah. thing where he talks about the greater good and Lee talks about it seems to me that you should do that you should fight evil where you find it, right? Yeah. Like right here. Yeah. And I think that's and, essential.
0: Yeah. I I hadn't really noticed that line when I was reading it, but now that we're talking about this and I'm thinking about how, how the story ends, I think that line is very, very important actually.
3: And all of this like transcending your place in the world and what society has to tell you is like very Nietzschean and philosophically. Like Nietzsche is the first guy to in the modern philosophers to like really define this stuff because all the philosophy before this is really like a set of justifications for why the group matters more than you do. And why you need to find your place in the group, which makes sense. You know, if we're talking about human survival in terms of like the natural world that is more powerful than we are. But once we enter modern history and we, you know, we haven't tamed nature in any way, really. But we have this like outsized kind of influence over nature, which is an aspect of this book, too. Right. They talk about how the chemicals are changing the environment and you know, that's manifested through the portals and the effect that Lord Azrael's had on the universe. And it's like, you know, we're so powerful now. We need to stop thinking in terms of like, I need to go along with the group and think about our personal moralities and our consciences and like, what does the world mean to me? And start to live for that. That is- you know the more human uh, way to be as modern people, and Nietzsche is the first guy to articulate those kind of things in philosophy. And so, I don't know. When I see these themes. It's not that you know. Once again, it's not that I think Philip Pullman was like read Nietzsche and was like I need to write a book about this. He might never have read Nietzsche or thinks that Nietzsche is terrible because lots of people do. Um, but there's a lot of existentialism in these books. And that stuff starts with Nietzsche. And he was an atheist.
2: <laughs> <Ta-da>.
0: <laughs> I do think as, as someone who who was literally raised with zero religion in her life, well, as as much as you can be living in, in our society, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, existentialism is just where you go when you start to be like, like, when you get old enough to be like, what the fuck is happening? Like, what is life? <laughs> Why are we doing this? Well, you, you know what I mean? Like, if, if if religion doesn't do it for you, existentialism is just waiting.
3: Yeah, yeah. That's, that's where all the big fights are, too, in the culture wars, is people who think that you need to be defined by the norms of culture and people who reject that. That is the battle lines of the culture wars. And that's existentialism on one side and religion on the other. So speaking of religion that we have been speaking about for, has it been an hour and a half now? Um, yes. <laughs> so in the first book, we had this thing about Lord Asriel takes a child up to the top of a mountain and sacrifices him to the heavens in order to open a gate. Uh, well, I wanted
0: to bring that up when you mentioned about Lord Asriel being a hero. He is also a dick. Yeah. He is also a child murderer.
3: A child murderer. And uh, remember that uh, all of uh, the Abrahamic tradition rests on an almost child murderer in Abraham, who also brings a child up to the top of a mountain to sacrifice him to God. And then God says, whoa, whoa, wait, just joking. Here's a ram. And Abraham says, whew, thank goodness. uh, And then does that. I talked about that at the end of the first book and I saw another Old Testament, very important story in the ending of this, like the last chapter here, where Will is wrestling with his father. And to me, that feels like when Jacob wrestles God uh, in the darkness um, in the Hebrew Bible. Jacob's a very important person because he is the origin of the of israel of like the hebrew like after that wrestling match with god he wrestles all night long and he won't give up and uh finally he's injured in a way where he can't wrestle anymore Wait, he's
2: sorry can i pause for a second yeah. he's literally wrestling god yes Well, so do we know what God, what God looks like? No, because it's in the darkness, super built.
3: Mm -mm. It's just like this. It's exactly like this where they, they can only feel each other. They can't see each other. He doesn't know what's going on. He just knows that like, and you know, it's all like, it's clearly all a metaphor for like, you know, I, I want to do this, but you need me to do that. And, um, you know, why, why is the world so hard and, you know, All of this stuff, the the existentialism that we were just talking about, it's um, Jacob is wrestling with his identity, literally, because at the end, when he's injured and daybreak happens, it's like God kind of like respects him. He's like, you never gave up, right? I overwhelmed you because I'm God and I was always going to win this fight, but you never you gave it everything you had. And so I give you my blessing. I rename you Israel. And he literally has 12 sons who are the origin of like the 12 tribes of Israel. This is the origin of the Hebrew people is Jacob wrestling God.
2: You know, this actually makes me feel a lot better about that scene. I didn't complain about it because it was only my third least favorite part of that chapter. (laughs) But it did seem kind of weird to me that it's like, He's looking, like, Grumman should know what's happening, that he's, like, trying to, I don't know, just based on how all-knowing he seems about everything else that's happening, it seems weird and wrong that he would, like, stumble onto his son and then just, like, randomly decide to fight him. Mm
0: -hmm. And also Will, because Will knew that, like, the alethiometer kept saying, yeah, we just keep going, your father's up ahead. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then mm-hmm. you so find a mysterious man in the darkness. It's obviously your fucking father. Sorry.
2: <laughs> yeah. No, it is. It's a little bit frustrating. And so knowing that it's like a biblical reference and and like a little bit of a metaphor makes me be less frustrated by it.
3: Mm-hmm. You You know, you were asking, like, did he literally wrestle God? I should say that um, at other points in the Bible, when this event is referenced there are different like it says like he wrestled an angel or he wrestled you know like did he wrestle God literally like the idea of God changes so much across the Bible and across time that like in the original story he definitely wrestled God and then later people were like oh that's not possible um and so they changed it I see but You know, it's all about identity and, you know, you know, Jacob wrestling God is like a a whole thing about masculinity too. Right. And like wrestling your creator. Will is literally wrestling his creator and he is, and this whole thing is about masculinity. I think um, in terms of like their fight and then afterwards, the way that he handles um, Utah with like so much violence and is so, incensed with her and and how scared she is of him like that really feels gendered to me in an important way. Um, And and the way that he's marked as a warrior will is by his father and told that that is what he needs to be also feels like he's pushing an identity onto his son, even though he doesn't know that it's his son, which is very, like, masculine. In in a certain way. I don't think that's an accident when we're talking about things like Lyra being Eve, you know, Um, which I'll talk about later. But this changes Will's identity and has to do with him wrestling his creator. And so it's just to me, it's like very loaded with Jacob. I don't know if that brings anything. I don't know if it makes the story better or anything, but I think I think this one is definitely there.
0: Oh yeah, yeah. Now that you described that, absolutely. I I would never have known that though.
3: If you've ever heard of to- Jacob's ladder, that's also where that comes from.
2: The, there's a ladder in the in the wrestling match. It's like tables, ladders, chairs.
3: Yep. It's uh he yeah. He he mantles a ladder and then Okay, great. <clears throat> and puts God on a table and then yeah, power power bombs him.
1: Is this gonna be a hell in the cell moment? <clears throat> Yes. Look how we're all
2: coming out of the closet as WWE fans secretly,
1: (laughs) or Redditors, one of the two.
2: I have
0: no idea what's happening in this. Oh,
3: you're gonna pretend like you don't know. That's it. That's good. No, as far
0: as I'm aware, Jacob's ladder is a flower in uh, Animal Crossing that you can. (laughs) Anyways, (laughs) so
3: good. Perfect. It's a it's a bad toy. Um, it's literally a stairway to heaven. There's a song about it. Go look it up.
0: Okay. Actually, fuck you. <laughs>
3: <laughs> <laughs> I almost choked on water, everyone. Worth it. The, <laughs> the last thing is Eve gets name dropped. Last time we got the serpent. Now we get Eve. Hopefully everybody knows who Eve is. Um, she is the Uber mama. <laughs> I you know, Eve is very complicated in the Abrahamic tradition. I'm not gonna run down like all the ways that <clears throat> she exists. Christians see her as the source of original sin, which is important to this story in particular, I think, and especially like the relationship to dust, the, you know, like we've had dust and original sin conflated together. And now the idea that um, Lyra is Eve and the way that Eve's um, sin in the garden of trying to seek out knowledge through the serpent is what infected her biologically in a way that her children come out already infected with sin, already hungry for knowledge, already rebelling against God before they even breathe. That's the idea of original sin, that we are fallen from before we are born, because Eve was biologically changed by eating the fruit. So, yeah, Lyra is Eve. She's the source of evil. And it's weird because, like... There's all of these ideas that have to do with, like, you know, God creating the universe. And in some interpretations in the Abrahamic tradition, like, you have the more cosmic things that God does are kind of, like, less impressive. And as the days of creation go on, um, God's uh, acts of creation become more minuscule, but more complicated and therefore more glorious, And you could kind of interpret Eve in that way. You know, like on the first day he creates light and it's like, okay, cool. But then, you know, like he creates the sun and then the planets and then, and that's more complicated, right? Than the light. Light is just like a concept. It's just radiance. And then he creates the oceans and everything in the oceans and then all the animals. And so it's getting more complicated. It's getting uh, more interconnected and systematic and, and therefore, like, more glorious. And Eve is the last thing that God creates. And so, in a way, she is kind of the pinnacle of creation, if you think of it in that way. She is the most perfect thing in the universe, therefore. the Like, the most glorious... Like, Adam was kind of like a rough draft, if you think of it that way. And Eve is a more perfect version of what a human should be. And that might be because in like when people study religion sometimes they they take a very superficial way of of seeing it you know like you'll read the greek myths when you're in school and they'll be taught in a way that like this is what everyone thought of zeus for all of greek history and this is what everyone thought of athena or whoever and that's not true you know like we know that from just being alive in the world where someone might seem like a hero. And then later on, uh, they are a villain in, in the narrative of the culture.
2: Classic milkshake duck.
3: (laughs) Classic, uh, JK Rowling. Um, yeah. And so that is true in religion. You know, sometimes, you know, certain gods were like worshiped and then they fell out of favor for political reasons. Um, or because of like trends in history. There's a really good book. I can't remember the name of the writer. I'll put it in the show notes um, called the invisible spider that is like about the rise of uh, the patriarchy across all religions in the ancient world and how we used to worship female gods and how a lot of myths that we take now as being like, Oh, this is how we always believed in these gods are actually about subverting um, the female gods that we used to worship in favor of male gods to reinforce patriarchy. And that this happened around the same time that we started writing things down. And so it seems like we always believed these things, but in fact they were just codified because that's when writing happened. And so it, it helps to like bolster the patriarchy across history writing does. Um, and you could see this, like, like why would Eve be born out of Adam? She would literally be the only human to be born from a man. It's weird. It's a weird idea. And, you know, in that book, the author, she points out, you know, like in Judaism, there used to be like a, a female God in the ancient Hebrew that was like co-equal to the male God. And but I she did not know that. Yeah, yeah. That's really cool. She but she fell out of favor like politically. And it and it became and part of the reason for this is like because the Israelites were constantly getting conquered by the more advanced um empires around them. I mean, they were they just were in a terrible geographic position in terms of like there's Persia over there and there's Babylon over there, and these like very powerful, there's the Greeks, right? There's like all these very powerful civilizations around them and they're constantly getting rolled because they're in a important place on the Mediterranean sea and like a, a kind of juncture between Africa, Asia and Europe where like Jerusalem is important geographically speaking. And they don't have the kind of uh, military to like fight against all these empires. And so everybody else worships multiple gods How are you going to retain your identity in the face of getting conquered constantly? You start to, like, appropriate what your conquerors, uh, you know, believe in, and then you invert it. So you believe in multiple gods. We believe in one god. So now we don't believe in a female god and a male god anymore. We believe in one god, and it's the male god. And so all of the stories get revised, So now Eve is not like the source of this female imperative. She's born from a man and she's the source of evil because, you know, like we have to reject this ancient principle and then we have to like retell our history. We were always this way. And everybody who believed in the one God going all the way back to Abraham was right and good because this is how it always was.
2: You say that, but isn't the idea of Eve as the source of evil Like much more popular in Christian traditions than it is in the Jewish tradition.
3: That's true. You're absolutely right. And part of the reason for that is because the early Christian church uh, could not read Hebrew. There's like a big break there where Peter and Paul argue about this literally in the New Testament. Peter thinks that Christianity is only for the Jews. If you're going to convert to Christianity, you need to get circumcised. You need to only eat the kind of foods that Jewish people eat. You need to dress the way that Jewish people dress. You need to convert to Judaism, basically, right? Because that's what... I see. Christ-
2: Christianity is like Jewish plus.
3: Yeah. that I mean, to Paul, that I mean, to, to Peter, that's obvious, right? And he literally learned from Jesus. Peter did. And Paul says, no, this is for everyone. And the rules don't apply anymore because the Greeks and the Romans... They're not going to get cut. What are you talking about? They're not going to stop eating milk and meat. They're not going to stop eating lobster. Like we need numbers, my man. Uh, that's what this game is all about. Uh, we need to convert as many people as possible. And so you need to lower the bar to get more people through. And part of that <laughs> has to Sorry. do.
0: So Christianity <laughs> is
2: actually just Judaism minus.
3: Exactly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs>
2: Also, wanting to convert everybody is like the least Jewish idea ever.
3: <laughs> no, you're totally right. Because it because it has nothing to do. That's true. Judaism has nothing to do with like people getting into heaven or anything like that. It's just the like the embodiment of uh, the narrative of, of God coexisting with his people on earth. It doesn't matter about everybody believing the same thing. That's not the point of Judaism. Yeah, you're totally right about that. But... The so when the Jews get conquered or when the Hebrews, I should say, get conquered by Alexander the Great, um, they like the Greeks are interested in their religion. They want to know more about it. And so all of their religious texts are translated into Greek. This is called the Septuagint, uh, the translation of the Old Testament into Greek. And that is the Bible that the christians read because they can't read hebrew they've rejected the jewish culture and so everybody reads greek and so they read the greek version of the old testament and all of their understanding is informed by greek culture in terms of like interpreting the bible so Mm. they don't have the hebrew perspective like you're saying about how eve is you know more. Of, this is like a myth about childhood and innocence and like awareness, you know, and all the other political things that I mentioned earlier about like a switch to monotheism and stuff like that, and like defining our culture and the place of women in in Jewish culture in ancient times. It's 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 more informed by the myth of Pandora and uh, Pandora's box who Pandora in Greek mythology is the first woman to ever. She's like the Eve of Greek mythology. And Zeus creates her as a response to Prometheus, uh, stealing fire from the gods and giving it to humanity. And by humanity, I mean men because only men existed at the time. There were no women. And so in the Greek myth, they make Pandora and she's given all these gifts from all the goddesses and all the gods. But of course, you know, what is inside of Pandora's box, you know, the jar that she has or the box or, you know, what is clearly a womb metaphor for a woman. It's filled with evil. It's filled with darkness. And and like, she is the source of all the bad things in the world. Like when a woman comes into The culture for the Greeks, it's a bad thing because the misogyny is built in to Greek religion in that way. Like, women are bad. Uh, And the thing about them that makes them women, their womb, their Pandora's box, their jar, is a bad thing. It's full of bad things. And the last thing in their hope, you know, is like retained within her womanhood. And so to conflate Eve with Pandora and the way that Eve unleashes sin into the world is like how Pandora's box opens and all of the bad things in the world. Like the world changes because of what Eve does and it ruins the world the same way that Pandora's box ruins the earth. Don't open random jars then. You know, (laughs) to associate Lyra with this kind of evil like, we've seen Lyra as a character do things that we would usually say are bad, right? Like, she lies to people all the time. She transgresses all these boundaries. She rebels against her religion.
2: She doesn't listen to her mother.
3: Yeah, or bad her father. Bitch. <laughs> yeah. But all of those things are heroic, right? They're recharacterized. Like, Pullman has appropriated all of these things that would be bad or evil or sins traditionally speaking, all the things that are bad about womanhood and invest them in Lyra in a way that is heroic. And so he's kind of inverting all of these connections between womanhood and, and Eve and evil and turning it into something good. And now he's like, just in case you didn't know what I'm doing, she's Eve and she's the source of evil. Um, but maybe that's not a bad thing. The way that we've been told it's a bad thing this whole time.
0: I mean I wouldn't I wouldn't say maybe. I I mean Philip Pullman has very clearly put put God on the bad side and yeah. Satan on the on the good side. So I, I don't think there's a maybe about
3: it. And with having the serpent be a scientist, that's also really interesting too.
0: But the serpent's actually uh disappeared, so we don't she's never gonna talk to Lyra again.
3: Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know. Were you guys surprised when you first found out that she's Eve?
2: Yes. Well, I don't know if I would say surprise so much as like confused. <laughs> I definitely didn't get the metaphor. Um, I mean, I guess yeah, if Mary's the serpent and Lyra is Eve, like something is going to happen with them in book three, but I don't know. I didn't put much thought into it, other than I know what I'm going to be spending my time on this weekend. As soon as we stop recording,
1: <laughs> I still just felt like with a lot of these obvious Bible metaphors or obvious kind of Abrahamic tradition metaphors, it it felt like Pullman was making a point, and that like he was saying, Huh, hey, this is a another bad thing," and they 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 see. They they see Lyra like this, and I went, okay, cool. I don't know, it, it, didn't, it didn't really pop for me as something like... It, like, it's interesting when you actually think about it, when you talk about it, but every time I've read it, I've just been like, all right.
3: What do you think it means that the witches say that she's Eve? Like, I don't even know what Eve is to the witches. Like, I just like, think...
1: feel that Eve is a metaphor, generally, for stuff. Like... <laughs> like i I hate i don't know i you're
0: Mm. when you say what eve is to the witches you're saying that as though like here in reality religion is something that human beings wrote and it's a metaphor stories blah blah but the witches accept it as a real thing i I wouldn't yeah yeah, i wouldn't necessarily say as a real person or to say that it had necessarily gone exactly as it is written in the book, but the witches seem to think that Eve, as a concept at least, existed, and Lyra is that concept again. So I don't think it has anything to do with them being Christian, per se.
1: Mm-hmm. Because they're... But it's, it's the prophecy. No. It, like, it's just, it's not that they have it as a history as much as they have it as a sort of a tradition. Which I suppose is arguably inextricably linked to history, yeah. especially in non-like early non-writing experiences. Um, but it just—I don't know. It, like she's prophecy. It feels like you could replace. It feels like Eve just conveniently sums up the importance of her and her complete entanglement and like intricacy, intricacy? Uh, inextricability with the concept of um the fall and the fall from grace. It is it, I don't know. It just it feels clumsy. You could have just said she's important. And <laughs> like it would have fundamentally filled she's important cuz Satan cuz Satan. There we are. As it's it was like Satan.
3: The nail on the head <laughs> a little bit too much uh Yeah. So if you yeah. weren't getting it, she's Eve.
0: I don't know because like okay, I wouldn't have gotten it when I was first reading this because what what the fuck did i know about religion absolutely nothing so maybe you know maybe he felt he did need to say it um
1: my problem isn't with that you can get eve from it my problem is that i don't feel that eve really the the idea of her being eve doesn't actually add all that much gravitas which isn't explored fully pretty you, you could have you could have said any word there and it would have fundamentally made very little difference because like Earth we something. assume, because right. we assume already, we have enough context from the witches that that they have a history about this person. They've named her Angela. They said she is Angela. That it, that lends its gravitas to that. It doesn't matter that Angela. We have no idea what Angela's meant to do. It doesn't matter. We know that the witches are interested because well, that they've gone and pursued about, this
0: about um, Mrs. Coulter understanding who she was and why she was important. Yeah. that could have witches. been An- there could have
1: been Angela still. It, well, it, Angela you know, wouldn't have meant
0: have... anything to Mrs. Coulter though.
1: But as in, yeah, yeah, I suppose. But but then she just asked the next question, which is, "Who is Angela?"
3: And like you and call then her,
1: she just tortured that out of her. Yeah, yeah. Well, no, I yeah get, exactly. Like that would have done it. I.
0: It's
1: just not. I'm, I I
0: disagree. I I get what you're saying, and I actually don't think this scene is that impactful. I just think. Like, Mrs. Coulter had to understand that she was Eve and that she was going to bring about, and that as far as Mrs. Coulter, from her point of view, that Lyra was going to be bringing about humanity's next fall from grace or whatever. Um, Mm -hmm. Right? Because that's important. As we've seen, that's what Mrs. Coulter cares about. That's what she's studying. That's where she gets her power and her ambition and, and all that sort of stuff. So that specifically would be important to Mrs. Coulter.
3: I think it's also I didn't write this down, but um, it's also like a really clear Narnia reference because like constantly in those books, the human children from our world are referred to as sons of Adam and daughters of Eve. Like that is like other humans are not referred to in that way in Narnia, but only the people from like our world are referred to that way. And it's important in the story that that, you know, they are associated with like that Christian root. Um, and so associating Lyra with it, like in terms of like all the ways that it's pulled inside out from what Narnia is, is also like another, you know, just like her getting into the wardrobe. This is another indicator of like the anti Narnia-ness of this series.
0: I, when I I don't remember I like I genuinely don't remember how I felt about this book because probably when I read this Eve meant absolutely nothing to me like I knew who who she was but I don't have any feelings about it but I I think it sets up like expectations for what's going to happen in the next book something to look for I suppose that you know when we're in the third book it's not just the plot that's happening we're going to be looking for Lyra to fulfill this role that she's been given in In the sort of a similar way that will has been given this role as warrior mm-hmm. and and knife
3: bearer or whatever it gives us expectations about who he could be too right
0: yeah. and also, I don't know I, I I like it because it sort of brings things together about about how but how we've talked about the dust suddenly being attracted to the skulls or what have you thirty five thousand years ago and And saying that Lyra is Eve and going to bring about another fall kind of implies that that's what happened thirty five thousand years ago humanity's first fall from grace or our first taste of knowledge right and it so it it makes uh I was going to talk about something that something hasn't hasn't happened yet shit uh, this is the problem with these stupid episodes um. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. I I like it. I I think it's interesting. And it just fits well into the story. But it didn't like, intrigue me in any way the first time I read it.
3: Yeah, I think when I first read this, I was like, Oh, this is why the Catholics are so mad.
2: (laughs) (laughs) About the book
3: specifically.
2: Not, Not about
0: God being evil. They're not mad about that.
3: I don't know that it really clicked for me when I read it because I was like so freshly out of evangelical culture and just trying to understand storytelling. And I think I was just like taking the the book on like it's portal fantasy kind of, you know, adventure. And then I was like, and she's Eve. And I was like, oh, wait a minute. (laughs) Like, (laughs) oh, I get it. Oh, this is why the Catholics hate this thing.
2: Just wait until (laughs) book three.
3: Yeah, yeah.
2: I'm very excited to be <laughs> fully involved in these subtextual conversations. Yeah, but sure. book three is literally like, well, fuck you, religion,
0: like more so than one and two, or <laughs> fuck you, Christianity, I guess. Um, yeah, I I would like to say that there was a point very earlier on in this episode where neither Francis or I said anything about stuff coming in book three, and I'm very proud of both of us.
1: <laughs> mm. We did a good job today. Yeah, I was
0: gonna bring it up at the time, but it would have been very obvious. So now, I'm, so I'm bringing it up now, so that you don't know what conversation I am referring to.
1: But there were huh. conversations. Trust us. Yeah. And they
0: were scary. <laughs> All right. So I think we've got a pretty quick dust watch. Uh, this this episode. I've forgotten everything that's mentioned about dust in these chapters.
3: Did We get this whole thing about like when Lee goes into city and and he's like what what in tarnation are them things down there and then we get an info dump but
2: in a danish accent (laughs) yeah we'll talk about that
3: um yeah we get john perry who is like oh those are specters and he says that and again i'm taking perry as like an authority here but maybe he doesn't know what he's talking about he says that the specters are interested in to quote a conscious and informed interest in the world. Uh, and that's why they ignore the children because children, you know, are like naturally curious and whatever, but they can't approach things with an informed interest because they just have less experience that they, they can't be informed. That's the nature of innocence in this story. And so is that what dust is? Is like, is dust an informed interest in the world and that's what why it collects on adults and not children
0: i would i would from what we've seen so far i i think we would say that dust is attracted to that almost in a similar way to the specters except dust doesn't seem to uh feed on it so much as it seems to uh encourage it
3: yeah yeah like it, it makes more connections or something or it makes you more sophisticated somehow.
2: Yeah. I am troubled by this idea that children are fundamentally different from adults because of how like interested they are in things. I don't know. I feel like there are some fundamental differences between children and adults, but that seems like a really condescending and inaccurate way to frame those differences.
0: I, I do think it's important, like Alan just said, that we are just taking John as an authority. He is not necessarily mm-hmm. right or an authority. I mean, yeah. he, he's known about these things for 10 years. Mm-hmm. You, you know, like before that, he was just a dude from our world who didn't know about any of this. But he's so, a shaman. Shut up. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so it's, nice. it's important to keep that in mind about him. Um. And about what he says, and that, like, nobody really seems to know about what Dust is yet, other than it is related to all of these things. On the other hand, though, I mean, the the differences between adults and children in these books, I mean, you just kind of have to take it at face value
2: with the story, in a way. yeah. So, am I correct in saying that this is the first time that we see a specter attack somebody with a demon? Yes. Right, because we've I, seen... Yeah, I'd completely forgotten that this
0: happens, that that we do see one, because I we were talking about it, how I wanted to see it happen.
2: hmm Yeah, so that's... It's kind of cool that um, when Mrs. Coulter sends a specter after uh, Lena, cardboard witch number one <laughs> in this chapter... Um the less offensive cardboard witch um that the specter doesn't actually go after her body it goes after her demon and it consumes her demon and so that i think is pretty clear evidence that whatever like essence a demon is is physically located inside um people from worlds where they don't have an external demon yeah
0: and Um, is what the specters are devouring
2: yeah, and it is what the specters are devouring. So that's a cool confirmation to get. Um, and I don't know if that really informs us that much about dust, but it does inform us a lot about specters, and we know that specters are somewhat related to dust somehow. So I, it kind of fits in this section.
0: Yeah, and yeah. M- I think when Mrs. Coulter and, and Boreal are talking, they or somebody says... Oh, no, it's John. I, whatever. Somebody says that they feed on dust, and as we but we see them eat the demon, so I think it's more accurate to say they feed on people that dust is attracted to. Like dust okay, is, yeah, is um, like a fine sprinkling of salt.
1: <laughs>
3: <laughs> just, yeah, just to just you know, that, add a bit of flavor.
0: Yeah, just that really good seasoning.
1: This is a garnish, really. Yeah, It's like turmeric. <laughs> It's not a garnish, just In- so you know.
3: <laughs> Inspector culture, it's not called dust, it's called garlic. It's- <laughs>
0: <laughs> I'm glad my joke landed. Uh, but, uh, but with whom? Yeah, geez. Um So from that, I actually think we just get a lot of contradicting things about what dust is, which, guess what, that's just going to continue on. <laughs> <laughs>
1: forever more,
0: yeah, pretty much <laughs> uh anything else that we wanted to talk about that we didn't cover on dust or on anything, sorry i th- i I think we're done with dust, but okay. anything yeah. that anybody wanted to talk about?
2: I thought that it was kind of interesting that book two ends with a successful poisoning, and book one started with a failed poisoning. Uh, Hmm. I have no idea what happens in book three, so I don't know if we get like a a third poison, but um, it I don't know. It felt like kind of a nice symmetry somehow.
3: If you think about the Garden of Eden and how that apple is poisoned in a certain sense.
2: Hmm. Yeah. Considering what actually happens, it's fucking hilarious. Sorry. (laughs) 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 I'm just saying everything. Uh, on the recording so we can all make fun of me later.
3: Oh, I like what you're pointing out. I hadn't thought about how you're exactly right. She is isn't he even uh the same kind of wine? I know that he serves her Tokay when they meet in Will's World. I'm trying I to Tokay is
1: basically implying like muscat or something like that. It's it seems like it's used like a really like a nice sweet wine which you have with as a Mm-hmm. I don't know, actually. I wonder, what, I wonder where they say tokay is.
0: I do not understand all these like rich, snobby people drinking sweet wine. Sweet wine is disgusting. <laughs> <laughs> and any type of proper wine snob knows, the drier the better. Thank you very much.
3: Mm.
2: It's not a real tokay if it's not from the tokay region of the Magisterium. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I mean, it's uh, the actual tokay wine... Is uh, sweet white wine, white wine from Hungary. Mm-hmm. Oh,
2: yeah, we, we talked about
1: that sure.
0: back in book one, season chapter. Oh, well, did I, we? That was like years air. ago. Yeah, yeah, that was I years ago. Yeah. No, no, no. I'm just saying. We, I remember Hungary coming up.
3: I mean, I saw the, you know, the way that you noticed the framing of the poisonings. I, I noticed uh, that Will fails at the end of the book in a way that's similar to Lyra failing at the end of her book Um, you know like Will has all these fantasies about how I'm gonna meet my dad and we're gonna go off and be explorers and go on adventures in a very similar way to Lyra's fantasies about Lord Asriel Um, but oh yeah
2: I didn't even think about that parallel yeah
3: but it doesn't work out right like he, right. in meeting his father, he kind of leads his death to him, right? He, like, the witch follows him to John and he dies because of Will in the way that, like, Roger dies because Lyra brought him to Asriel. And and so, like, it's because of him that his father died in a way that is similar to Lyra's failure around Roger. I mean, it's not the same, mm-hmm. but it, to me, it's like the structure of it is similar in a way that feels intentional. And, you know.
2: No, I totally get that. Yeah.
3: And, and I think that what Pullman does here that's interesting is that usually in fantasy, the way that, you know, Caitlin has been saying, we build our heroes up with like successes as they they kind of level up in their journey to confronting the dark one and Pullman has his heroes fail. And that is what builds them up because in experiencing these failures in tearing down their fantasies about the way the world is going to work and their place in it, they have to redefine themselves and they have to figure out who they really are. And that is like where their heroism is situated.
0: That's interesting because I don't know. It it does kind of turn out that the the two failures, the two deaths, I suppose, at the end of each books are important in a very like physical way to the continuing plot, mm-hmm. and, and and not a metaphorical like this is what makes us who we are because we failed and now we're doing something different, or or we're learning from our mistakes, you know, Will and Lyra
2: because. Hmm? Do you think that Will would have gone with his dad to Lord Asriel even if Lyra had gone missing? I think that would have been a 10,000
0: times more interesting ending to this book. If John was alive and was like, Will, we have to go to Asriel. And Will's like, okay, I just got to go get Lyra. And there's no fucking Lyra. And then Will has this like this friend who's been with him and helped him. Or yeah. this man who he doesn't even fucking know. He has but to make it a is choice. his dad, you know. Like yeah. I, I get yeah. why cool. that doesn't happen for where Pullman wanted to take the story because I have no memory of whether we've talked about this on mic or off mic. But I know Alan and I have talked about a big thing that happens in the third book was something that Pullman had in mind from the very beginning,
3: mm-hmm, and mm-hmm.
0: that that's sort of what I'm talking about here. Like that wouldn't happen without these without these two deaths that happened. Oh, right. Sorry, vague. Um, so like, I get why it doesn't happen, but I do think that would have been a much more interesting ending to this book to see what will would have chosen. If it wasn't a random angel saying we're here to take you to Asriel, but it was his dad saying, I'm taking you to Asriel.
3: Mm-hmm. I think it would have been interesting too, for like, cause he makes this whole pitch without understanding who will is. Uh-huh. And then, he realizes in that same moment that he dies that Will is his son. It would it would have been interesting to me if he was like, oh, wait a minute. You're actually my kid. Forget everything I just said because I can't. I like I've I thought I lost you and now I have you again. You're not going to be in this war. I'm going to shelter you from all of this or something like that. If you. If he like, you know, the way that Lee feels towards Lyra, like you got to protect that girl. There's no one I would have loved, you know, if I would have had a kid. Yeah, like if he would have reneged on his entire purpose in life because now I can protect my son and have a relationship. That would have been interesting, too. Like none of them get the chance to make a choice here. It's just like circumstances force them.
0: And I'm not saying the way that this that that I don't like the way it played out or or where it left the story. Uh, I'm just saying that there are so many interesting things that could have happened here also.
3: Yeah. 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 I don't think this is bad writing. It's it's just. Yeah. It makes you think.
0: And I I do think Will still has a difficult choice because he can save Lyra, his friend, or he can fulfill the dying wishes of his father.
3: Mm -hmm. It's still powerful.
2: Yeah. Uh, okay, is so it time for my Alamo rant? Do sure. It. I think this one's going to be kind of short, but we'll see. Um, it's... So... Okay, we find out in this chapter um, that the Alamo still happened, uh, just like it did in our world, but instead of the um, Mexican forces and the white american forces um i say white americans because it was more of an ethnic thing than a political thing they uh were not operating as any government they just like moved into the mexican territory and then decided they uh wanted to own it (laughs) um so it was the danes and the french Um, Which is like kind of a cool alternate history, but also like knowing what I know, it throws me out because all of the words are Spanish words. And so if Spain wasn't involved, like it wouldn't be called the Alamo. Alamo is the Spanish word for a poplar tree. (laughs) Um, And also like Texas, I think I may have mentioned this before, but like Texas is an English bastardization of a spanish word which is a bastardization of a native american word um so like the word again like the word texas wouldn't exist if it hadn't been colonized by spain
1: so what you're saying why would Lee be
2: speaking english if it hadn't been eventually taken over by english former english colonists
1: yeah so what you're saying is it shouldn't be the Alamo, it should be the Pupilier or the Popple.
2: Yes, exactly. <laughs>
1: Pupilier, whatever. Um, yeah, not, not the Alamo.
2: Okay, I think this episode is over. And since this is the end of book two, we're going to take a short break until the start of season two, sorry, series two of the TV show, um, which is coming out in November. If you're really sad that you won't get to hear our voices in your ears every week, you we have some other shows that you can check out. Alan and I have a podcast called Hallowed Ground Storycast where we talk about the TV shows, books, and movies that are most important to us. Um, and we also have some fun guest episodes um, where we talk to other people about their favorite stories. Kate and I have a podcast with our friend Mandy Kay called Desire Made Real that is about a discovery of witches, which is another fantasy trilogy also set in Oxford. And filmed by the same studio. Yes. Oh, uh, sorry, I didn't.
0: (laughs) I'm paying attention. Uh, I have a podcast with my friends Emmy and Rachel uh, called So You Want to Read Tolkien, where we read through Tolkien's body of works.
2: Uh, if you like our show, please take some time to leave us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts. I'm Anya, and you can follow me on Twitter at Strangely Literal. That's Strangely, then L-I-T-E-R-L. I'm Caitlin, and you can follow me on Twitter at InferiorCaitlin.
3: I'm Francis, and you can follow me on Twitter at Francis Windrum. Follow the show on Twitter at MOTpod. If you need more than 280 characters to speak your mind, you can send your emails to contact at hallowedgroundmedia.com.
0: And remember to always murder the men who scorn you, because that's totally normal.
2: (laughs) Best ending ever.
1: Nice. End of season two. just can we just replace can we just replace anya's uh, intro every time with the sound of a train horn going? <laughs> <laughs> and i'm wasn't there
0: i wanted to make a joke about how that's what it sounds like anyways <laughs> <laughs>
2: wow uh,
0: that was a little bit mean so then i couched it <laughs> it was beautiful
1: there. and i loved <laughs> it
2: oh thank you Wait, so this is the distance from Tolkien's miles. corpse to C.S. Lewis's corpse? Yes.
1: yes.
2: Mm-hmm. Okay. Sadly. <laughs>
1: the fact that this is what the podcast has come down to now. Mm-hmm. We're working at the right, distance yes. between writers' corpses.
0: <laughs> I was going to say, sadly, we can't visit Philip Pullman's corpse, but that's not... <laughs> I didn't mean it that way.
3: <laughs> Holy shit. Now taking the... That- the more misunderstood use of death of the author that has yeah. been moving across I Twitter.
0: I don't know. what I'm not I meant. sure if you get
1: demonetized Just, on Apple Podcasts, but yeah. Yeah. that's what's going to happen.
2: I mean, we did already talk about Francis giving him COVID this episode. Yeah. So. Oh, right! So
0: we will be able to oh. visit his corpse. <laughs>